In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul commands Titus to set in order things that are lacking in the church of Crete. And the things that were lacking included some rebellious individuals and empty talkers that Titus needed to silence. And they needed to be silenced because they were upsetting people and teaching things that they shouldn't be teaching. And it's in the spirit of setting things in order that as a pastor I have a solemn duty to do. And today I'm going to do that. We're going to take our Bibles to Romans chapter 13 this morning. And we're going to address the issue of honoring God and government in a pandemic. Honoring God and government in a pandemic. Over the last several weeks, I've heard a lot of rebellious people, and I've heard a lot of empty talkers who have upset a lot of people and who are teaching things they ought not to teach. And this morning, we're going to address this issue biblically so that you have answers for those that you interact with that may be such people. You know, during this current pandemic, I have unfortunately heard pastors and no pastors, quote-unquote, that are refusing to follow government guidelines designed to help save the lives of its citizens. Some have even vowed not to permit any dictator law to stop services and have even encouraged their worshipers to continue meeting despite experts identifying behaviors, such behaviors, are an easy way to spread said virus. What amazes me, if I can say this on a sidebar, is that these very same pastors pass their own dictates and expect their people to hang on every word that they tell them because they're in authority. But the moment somebody in authority over them tells them what they're going to do, they don't want to listen. They're rebellious individuals. Just this week, a professing Christian wrote the following. The Bible says we're to obey authority. But so many Christians think we're living in the Roman Empire. We are not. We are living in the USA. Is the president the authority we are to obey? The governor? The mayor? No. In the USA, the authority is the Constitution. Now let's be upfront and clear. There are several problems with that statement. First of all, the Constitution is the law of the land. But those who enforce and uphold the law of the land are the authorities. Hence the term in Romans 13.1, governing authorities. Whether this individual likes it or not, the president, the governor, the mayor, they're all people in authority. Who we are to obey. Second, no Christian has the right to determine what Scripture is applicable or not. This individual is taking it upon themselves to say, well, Romans 13 doesn't apply to us because we're not living in the Roman Empire. Do you know how ridiculous that statement is? That statement is a complete denial of proper biblical hermeneutics. Proper biblical hermeneutics says you have to interpret the scripture literally, historically, culturally, and apply it then to today. 
So of course we're not living in or under the Roman Empire, but we're still living under a government. Therefore, if it says these are the precepts or principles for living under government, then they would apply. To discount the commands of Romans 13 about submitting to governmental authority because it was written under the Roman Empire is to take a butcher's knife to the Scripture. I mean, if that's the test for what to obey and not obey, then you might as well throw out the whole New Testament because the entire New Testament was written under the Roman Empire. And if you don't like that empire, what other empires don't you like? Well, hey, let's get rid of the Ten Commandments. I'm not living in a theocracy, so therefore the Ten Commandments no longer apply to me. That is, that, that is so ridiculous. This individual has taken a butcher's knife, not a pen knife, a butcher's knife, to the text of Scripture, and picking and choosing what they think applies or doesn't apply. Third, the First Amendment safeguards religious freedom. Okay? However, the Supreme Court has ruled that the rights guaranteed in the First, Second, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Amendments are not absolute. What does that mean? Well, consider the freedom of speech. The right to free speech does not protect libel, slander, bribery, or solicitation to commit a crime. I can't solicit someone to commit a crime and then say, well, wait a minute, I've got freedom of speech. That doesn't work. In the same way, the free exercise of religion is limited by the fact that you cannot commit human sacrifice. Yes, you have the, the freedom to exercise religion, but in the exercise of your religion, you cannot endanger someone's life, i.e. human sacrifice would be an endangerment of human life. So there's a limitation. The Supreme Court has also said that religious liberty does not exceed all forms of government regulation. In other words, there are regulations that cap it, that limit it. It goes on to say, when the law clearly impacts a specific religious practice. For example, we cannot use the First Amendment to protect a house of worship that defies a governmental edict to protect human life from an international viral pandemic threatening to kill millions when they command us to limit our gatherings during the fight against it. And they're not picking on just churches. This affects all religious institutions. Temples, mosques, cathedrals, churches, synagogues, on and on we can go. And it's not just churches and synagogues and temples. It's any place of mass gathering. Fourth, under the Tenth Amendment, it states that the state has the power and responsibility for maintaining public order and safety. 
See, the Tenth Amendment was included in the Bill of Rights to balance the power between the federal government and the state. The amendment says the federal government has only those powers specifically granted by the Constitution, including the power to declare war, collect taxes, regulate interstate business, and other such activity. Any powers not listed therein, says the Tenth Amendment, is to be left to the state to determine. And those powers include commerce within a state's own borders and local law enforcement activities within a state's own borders. And as we have seen since the outbreak began, and people say, well, how come they just didn't do a national lockdown? Or why didn't the, the government do this? Or the, why did they do that? Well, this is why the Tenth Amendment is why since the outbreak began, decisions about limiting social interaction, orders to uh, shelter in place, closing of businesses, shutting of schools are being made by governors and local officials. And those same officials will make the call about when to ease up. Now, we don't have to agree with their decision. We don't have to like their decision. We can have our own opinions about their decisions. But at the end of the day, Christian, you and I must honor God and government even in a pandemic. Now, we're going to go to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to look at the precepts that are laid out there and the principles that are laid out there on just how do we honor God and government in a pandemic. For that matter, you can apply these even outside of a pandemic. But particularly in a pandemic, there's this mindset amongst Christians that all of a sudden, here in the Western world, we're under this great persecution. My friends, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 was written by Paul to Christians under persecution. Real persecution. Where, when it was outlawed to be a Christian and live in Rome. So, if these principles are for Christians living under a government that has passed laws outlawing Christianity... How much more are they applicable to us in a pandemic when we've been inconvenienced from meeting together? So let's begin in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Number one, God established human government. God ordained it. End of the story. Man did not come up with the idea of human government. In fact, following the flood, God established government in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. And the government that God established, He placed in the hands of humanity for the purpose of regulating society. Now, this is not the first institution. The first institution that God ordained to regulate society is the family unit. And then following the flood, he established a second unit, and that was the government. And after the resurrection and ascension into heaven by our Savior, he instituted a third institution called the church. 
And so the government, the family, and the church are three God-ordained institutions that he uses to regulate society. We also need to understand that the ordination or the establishment of human government applies not simply to the institution. And by the way, you'll find nowhere in Scripture where God approves of one form of government over another outside of a theocracy where he rules and reigns, okay? This country is not a theocracy. There hasn't been a true God-sanctioned theocracy since uh, the kingdom of Israel split under Solomon. But outside of the theocracy, God appointed human government, but he did not say, well, I like this form of government better than this form of government. He didn't say, well, I think a republic's better than a democracy. He didn't say, well, I I prefer social democracy over communism or socialism. He didn't take that position. Now, obviously, we all have our particular likes. We all have our particular opinions on those things. And you can have those. But at the end of the day, regardless of what form of human government you are living under, you need to understand God established human government to regulate society. Well, I don't think they're doing a good job regulating. Well, again, that's your opinion, but God says, guess what? Even if they're not regulating it the way you think they should be regulating it, your responsibility is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. But, 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 listen, as I said a moment ago, the ordination of human government doesn't consist just of the institution, but it applies to the individual rulers as well. Listen, God appointed King Jeroboam over the ten northern tribes of Israel. And the man was as wicked as they come. He turned the people against God. You say, well, wait a minute. But God put him in charge? Yes, he did. Listen, he put Nebuchadnezzar. He calls Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon my servant in Jeremiah 27 and verse 6. He raised up and, and, and gave authority to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in turn took that authority, marched to Judah, wiped them out, and took them all into captivity. And God blessed him. And he was a wicked man. Even Pilate, the governor, who basically signed the death warrant on our Savior, was told by Christ himself that his authority, Pilate's authority, was truly from God in John chapter 19. You see, Daniel 2 makes it very clear that it's God who raises up kings or presidents or even dictators or governors, or mayors, or whatever the local authority may be called. Daniel 2.21, he removes kings and he establishes kings. And because God appoints them, we need to understand they are his servants. They are his servants. Romans 13 verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now, let's take a step back. We'll we'll, we'll look at this from the perspective that Roman Empire, Nero was Caesar. 
Nero burned Rome and blamed the Christians, outlawed the Christians, banished them from the, from the city, issued orders to have Christians put to death, burned at the stake. And Paul said, they are servants of God. Now the word servants there is the word liturgist. We get the term liturgy from this term. In Hebrews 1.7, the holy angels of heaven are called servants of God, liturgists. The priests who ministered in the temple, Hebrews 8.2, are called servants of God, liturgists. Those who preach the gospel, Romans 15 verse 16, are servants of God. They're liturgists. Now think about that. One who is a liturgist, one who is a servant, is someone who performs a sacred function. Angels perform a sacred function. The priest in the temple performed a sacred function. Preachers preaching the gospel perform a sacred function. And government officials are also performing a sacred function. And it doesn't say, so long as you agree with them, or as long as they're righteous. Nero was one of the most unrighteous people born on the face of the earth. But because God established human government, and there's no other authority except God's, we are to be in subjection to it. So number one, God established human government. That's precept number one. Precept number two, God established government to enforce laws for public welfare. God ordained government to enforce laws for public welfare. Let's again go to Romans 13. Let's read verse 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing... It's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 14 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14. By creating and enforcing laws against murder, theft, assault, and other crimes, the government is protecting its citizens from the destructive nature of immorality. Notice in Romans 13, verse 3, the term fear. It means to cause terror. God vested civil authority with the power to strike fear or terror into those who perpetuate evil. If you're not perpetuating evil, you don't have anything to fear, he says. The means of striking terror into the hearts of evildoers is bearing the sword. And bearing the sword points to the use of capital punishment to promote justice. And those who disobey the civil authority over them, the text tells us, will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, God ordained the government to bring judgment upon those who break the law. If you break the law, expect punishment. Well, what if I don't like the law? We're going to get to that. Well, what if I don't think the law is fair? We're going to get to that. Well, what if I don't think that law is moral? We're going to answer that. We're going to get there. 
But understand, Romans 13, 3 and 4 gives us our second precept, and that is God ordained government to enforce laws for public welfare. And if they establish a law that they believe is going to protect the welfare of the populace, of the public, from a global viral pandemic, then we as believers need to step back, take a 10 count, for some of you, count to a hundred and get a grip on what your responsibility as a believer to God and government in a pandemic is. Let's go to Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. We're going to get our third precept. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Third precept is simply this. Christians are to obey the government. Now we could say people, but specifically Christians, because it seems that Christians have the problem here. Christians are to obey the government. The command to be in subjection to government authority applies to all people, even Christians, for every person. It doesn't say every person except Christians. It says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The verb be in subjection means place yourself under another in an orderly fashion. Every person is to place themselves under the governing authorities in an orderly fashion. Fashion. The passive voice of this verb, be in subjection, indicates that these individuals are to place themselves under governmental leaders willingly. And just so we're clear, the term governing bodies refers to every position of civil authority without regard to competency, morality, reasonableness, or any other caveat. That is the textbook lectionary definition. Governing bodies refers to every position of civil authority without regard to competency, morality, reasonableness, or any other caveat. In other words, you can't sit there and say, well, I think he's incompetent, therefore, I don't got to listen. Listen, I think a lot of them are incompetent, but you know what? That's just my opinion. It doesn't give me the authority or the right not to submit to them. Submission involves obedience, honor, and respect for all civil authorities. We should be Submitting, not because we fear breaking the law. We're supposed to be submitting out of respect for God who knows our hearts. That's what we just read back in First uh, Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. And Romans 13 verse 5 told us, and for your conscience sake. You want a clean conscience. You want a clear conscience. Then just do what God says. Submit to the authority over you. And if your conscience isn't enough, listen, Christian, do it for God's sake. Do it for the Lord's sake. It's a matter of obedience to Him. 
Now, Paul penned these words during the reign of Nero, a megalomaniacal dictator. And despite his reputation as a leader, Romans 13 gives us no exception clause. No exception clause to obeying the command. I want to read you something written by Clement of Rome. He's the same Clement mentioned in the book of Romans in chapter 16. He lived under the persecution of emperors Nero and Domitian. And he prayed this prayer. He said this, Lord, direct our steps to walk in holiness, righteousness, and purity of heart. And to do what is good and pleasing in your sight and in the sight of our rulers. That ought to be our prayer. He goes on to say, Yes, Lord, let your face shine upon us in peace for our good, that we may be sheltered by your mighty hand and delivered from every sin by your uplifted arm. Deliver us as well from those who hate us unjustly. Give harmony and peace to us and to all who dwell on the earth, just as you did to our fathers when they reverently called upon you in faith and truth, that we may be saved, while we render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name, and, notice, to our rulers and governors on earth. For you, Master, have given them the power of sovereignty through your majestic and inexpressible might, so that we, acknowledging the glory and honor, which you have given them, may be subject by them, to them, resisting your will in nothing. Before I go on, I want to hit that again. He said, we need to render obedience to our rulers and governors on earth. Why? Because the Lord has given them the power of sovereignty so that he would be honored. And if we resist them, we are resisting God's will. He goes on to say, Grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, that they may, ble may blamelessly administer the government which you have given them. Have you prayed that prayer? Have you prayed like that for the people in authority? We're going to say more about that in a moment. So our first precept was the fact that God ordained human government. Our second precept was that God ordained government to enforce laws for public welfare. Our third precept was that Christians are to obey the government. And now our fourth precept is that submitting to government includes paying your taxes. Submitting to government includes paying your taxes. Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, there's that term liturgist, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now I will admit that paying taxes is an annual source of irritation. We believe they're too high. We believe they're spent too poorly. But regardless of what we think, at the end of the day, we're to honor God and government, and that involves... Paying your taxes. When you pay your taxes, you're honoring your government and you're honoring God. Whether or not the government legally or justly uses the tax money does not justify tax evasion. And again, just the other day I heard a quote-unquote Christian, a professing believer, say that they're not, they're not going to pay their taxes until the governor opens their state back up. That is someone who is doing a lot of empty talking. That is a rebellious person. And they need to be set in order. 
God required taxes to be paid because He ordained government, He appointed the officials, and He instituted taxes as the means of supporting those officials. Now there's two words used here in Romans 13, 6 and 7. Tax to whom taxes do. That's the Greek term for us. It refers to direct taxes, property tax or income tax. The second term, custom, telos, refers to indirect taxes such as sales tax or tariffs on imports and exports. These are taxes levied on goods or services. In other words, he says, pay your property tax, pay your income tax, pay your sales tax, and any other taxes that you've got to pay, pay them. I give you the example of Jesus in Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. You'll recall that Peter questioned as to whether or not Jesus was going to pay the temple tax. And Peter decided he was going to answer for Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, who are you to answer for me? Now, the t what was the temple tax? Temple tax was an approved Roman tax to provide funding to the Jews to operate the temple. The question was raised on the assumption that since Jesus calls himself the Son of God, he should be exempt from the temple tax because the temple was the house of God. And this goes back to the idea that the children of Caesar didn't have to pay taxes because their father was Caesar. They'd be basically paying tax to themselves. Jesus explained, yes, if the families of pagan rulers are exempt from taxes, I should be exempt from paying the temple tax because the temple was built for, by my, uh, for my father. But, and catch this, Jesus set aside his divine rights, humbled himself, and willingly took on the obligation of paying the taxes. Now, if Jesus didn't excuse himself from paying taxes to a den of thieves, how can believers refuse to pay the taxes that we're required to just because we don't like something? And he told Peter, pay the tax lest we offend them. Listen, there are issues here that are more important than your individual rights. And that issue is the eternal destiny of the loss. When Christians refuse to pay their taxes, they're sending a message. They're telling the unsaved, unbelieving, unregenerated, pagan world, we don't have to obey. And that's all they see. And when you do that, you lose your testimony, you lose your opportunity to present the gospel. Peter obeyed, and guess what? God provided the means for him and Jesus to pay the tax. Let's look at our fifth precept. Now, our fifth precept is not going to come from Romans 13, but from 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, and I'm going to include it here. I'm going to tack it on here. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, First of all, then, I urge the entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice the command, the precept. Believers, Christians, you are to pray for those in government. 
kings, and all in authority. Why? So you can lead a peaceful and tranquil life in godliness and dignity. That's good and acceptable in God's sight. It is not good and acceptable for you in God's sight to be out there raising a ruckus, refusing to pay your taxes, demanding that we, we're going to meet anyway, we're going to not listen to what they tell us to do, we're going to do what we want to do. I'll tell you, that's rebellion. And the Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You do rebellion, and guess what? You're no different than a Satan follower. That's what the Bible says. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will have welfare. Here's the Jews in exile in Babylon, and God tells them to pray for and seek the peace of Babylon. Their captors were oppressing them. And God said, listen, you have a responsibility, whether you feel like you're being oppressed or not, to keep the peace and pray. And we ought to be praying that they act wisely and come to repentance and faith. Maybe the reason they're not acting wisely in your mind, maybe, is because we haven't prayed enough. If you want to affect change, let me tell you something. The means of change... True change are not found in lobbying or political organizations. Effective change is found in prayer, godly living, and evangelism. That's where effective change is found. And yet that seems to be the three areas where the church is lacking. In the last several weeks I have seen and heard all kinds of things out of Christians' mouths. We're going to protest. We're, we're, we're going to refuse to follow these rules. We're going to do what we want to do. We know better than they know. And yet I've heard nothing from these people. We need to pray. Let's pray for them. Oh, they're praying the virus leaves because it's cramping their style. Maybe God's got that virus there. So you start praying for your government officials. Praying for their souls. Praying for them for wisdom. I'm not saying that if you pray automatically, they're going to think the way you think. But see, the outcome doesn't determine whether or not you obey God. God commands you to pray for them. You need to pray for them. God commands you to live godly lives, live a godly life. And going out and being a rebel isn't living a godly life. The truth of the matter is, we're commanded as Christians by God to submit to the government, even to wicked governments. And you know, the fact is, you shouldn't be surprised if the government is wicked. We live in a sin-cursed world. Sinners are leading the world. And they are going to misuse their power for their benefit, not for the benefit of those under them. And when corrupt governments punish law-abiding citizens and reward the scoundrels who kept them in power, believer, we must remember that God uses wicked rulers as His scourge to punish the sins of the people. In other words, God gives a nation the rulers they deserve. 
Listen, when Israel decided they kept thumbing their nose at God, God finally said, I had enough. I'm sending Nebuchadnezzar. Guess what? God may be giving us the rulers we deserve. How many times was Israel ruled over by wicked rulers as a chastening for failing to obey God's moral absolutes? Now, I know some of you listening don't want to go so far as to say that God ordained a wicked tyrant like Nero. You start chewing your nails at such a thought. I can't believe that God, such a loving God, would put somebody like Nero on the throne. So they fall for that old trap. God ordained the institution, not the individual. That is a weak attempt to dodge A problem the scripture repeatedly affirms. Listen, Jeroboam, who rebelled against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, set up a false god and a false worship center so his people didn't have to go to Jerusalem, and yet his kingdom, quote, was a turn of events from the Lord, 1 Kings 12, 15. Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple, slaughtered many Jewish peoples, carried most of the survivors to Babylon, and God says he's my servant. And I gave him all the land he conquered into his hand, Jeremiah 27. So don't tell me God doesn't ordain and establish wicked tyrants. He does. And he does it to chasten his people. And he doesn't give his people the choice whether or not to obey. Now let's be clear. Obeying government officials... Showing respect to officials doesn't mean we condone their immorality. John the Baptist confronted Herod's sin of incest. By the way, that's immorality. Making you stay home is not immoral. Immorality is defined as something that is contrary to God's moral standard. So if they commit some sin against God, incest, adultery, homosexuality, whatever, we should be calling out sin for its sake of sin. But let me caution you with three things. Number one, condemning immorality in the leader doesn't mean you hate the individual. You still got to love the individual. What do you mean by that? You love them enough to pray for them and preach the gospel to them. Second, condemning immorality in leadership should not be mean-spirited. We don't have to, we, we can condemn their immorality without stepping down into all kinds of crassness and name-calling and the such. And third, condemning immorality should never employ worldly tactics. We should never employ worldly tactics. Believer, you need to guard yourself against becoming antagonistic towards the lost whom you've been called to reach with the gospel. Yes, we need to speak out against sin and immorality and ungodliness, but we must do it in a law-abiding manner. And regarding this issue of civil disobedience, if the government passes a law allowing the people the choice of doing something that violates God's law, it would be immoral for you to commit civil disobedience. Let me explain. Abortion. 
Abortion is immoral in the sight of God, yet it's legal in the United States. And as believers, as Christians, we should not participate in abortion. But the law does not require us to abort our babies. Yes, we can peaceably protest abortion. Yes, we can peaceably seek to change the law. But we don't have the right to commit civil disobedience and go out and murder abortion doctors to make our case. In the United States, you have the right to peaceably protest, not to violently riot. And when a protest becomes violent or endangers lives, then the action of the protest just went from being moral to immoral. I don't care what the outcome is, the ends never justify the means. You don't break good laws to protest bad laws. We must follow the example of Jesus. He left us an example. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats, but entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2. Now, if the government commanded you to do something that directly violates God's word, then and only then do you have a case for civil disobedience. Then and only then must you resist the government and obey God. And be prepared that you will suffer some form of human punishment. But in such a case, better to suffer human punishment than moral censure. Now, if they passed a law and said you only allowed one baby, and you have to abort any other baby, and you end up uh, getting pregnant with a second child, now you've got a choice to make. Now you have to obey God rather than man and suffer the consequence. Now let's bring it home to these stay-at-home orders and gathering for worship in church. You see, both the government and the church have a legitimate biblical claim. We'll call this an overlap, if you will, between two points of view. On the one hand, the government has the legal authority to preserve human life. That goes all the way back to Genesis 9, 5 and 6. They're obligated by God to protect and preserve human life. And so if they temporarily ban all gatherings of a certain size to accomplish that, they should. And yes, at the same time, churches in the United States have the right to gather. But if the government has a reasonable argument to ban every kind of gathering in order to protect life, then we should act as dutiful citizens and obey the government. Romans 13. Now you say, but pastor, why does the government authority come first? Because preserving life now allows you the freedom to gather later. You cannot gather as a church if y'all dead. And that's why we need to pray for kings and lead peaceful and quiet lives. Sit down. Stay on your couch. Eat your bonbons. Drink your coffee and listen to the message. Call your friends and family in the church. Send them a card. Send them a text. Be the church from your home until we can be the church and gather again. And to encourage or partake in civil disobedience during this stage of the pandemic is nothing more than sin. 
the government does have a reasonable argument for banning gatherings. The fact is the virus has killed over 75,000 people in the United States within a six-week period. I say that is a reasonable argument. And if the government allowed mass gatherings but prohibited churches from gathering, then we might have a biblical warrant for a discussion. But at this stage, they have not allowed mass gatherings. As 1 Peter told us, we need to be model citizens so that we avoid offending non-believers. That doesn't mean we're silent about the truth. Listen, biblical truth will offend. But being a model citizen means submitting to governmental authority and complying with its laws. When we submit to authority, it is going to silence baseless accusations that are being lodged against believers. And you know what? Search the Scripture, search history. You will never find an ex any illustration or example or evidence of the early church ever mounting an insurrection against unjust, in their mind, laws. We need to obey the government, obey the ordinances, whether they're zoning, fire, safety, structural, building permit, whatever, so long as it doesn't conflict with Scripture. And we're to do it without grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Now, I know that's a challenge for all of us to stop mumbling and grumbling. By obeying the government, Christian, you got an opportunity to demonstrate three things. First, you can demonstrate that you love God. Two, second, you can demonstrate that you're seeking peace. You're living a peaceable life. And third, you're going to, it's going to provide you with a testimony that is more likely to compel the unsaved to the gospel message. You know, the unsaved shouldn't be looking at the church and saying, look at those wackos. Everybody else is closed. I can't go to my golf game. I can't go to my sporting event. I can't go here. I can't go there. But they can have church. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others, Christian. Romans chapter 13 is clear. God ordained it. He ordained human government. He ordained human government for the purpose of ensuring public welfare. Christians are to obey the government regardless of whether we like them or not. That includes paying your taxes, and we need to pray for those in government. Are you doing that? Are you praying for those in authority? I challenge you to stop right now what you're doing, and if you have not prayed for those in authority, first and foremost, confess your sin, because you have broken a clear command of Scripture. Confess your sin to God right now, and then start praying. But I don't like Governor so-and-so. I don't like President so-and-so. I don't like Senator so-and-so. God didn't, doesn't really care if you like them or not. He said pray for them. Pray for all of them. Pray for their wisdom. Pray for their salvation. Christian, have you been part of stirring the pot? You've been out there stirring up that protest nonsense? You've been out there demanding your right? You need to step back and examine yourself. You need to examine your heart. You need to ask yourself, if Christ could give up his divine rights, shouldn't I give up some quote-unquote human right to preserve life and to preserve my testimony? Christians, we have a responsibility to do just that.
And if you've been involved in that kind of attitude and action, you need to stop right now and you need to confess it. You need to cry out to God and repent of that sin. Christian, the world is watching. We have a wonderful opportunity now, more than ever, to be a light shining in darkness. Don't hide your light under the bushel of what you consider your human rights. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we just want to come before you, Lord, and ask and pray that, Father, you'd help us to these ends. And, Father, if we're grumbling and complaining, shut our mouths, give us repentance. Father, if we're out there stoking the flames and talking nonsense and encouraging protest and the such, Father God, bring us to repentance. Father, if we're out there being foolish, saying well, we don't care what the laws, we're going to do what we want, when we want, how we want. Father, bring us to repentance. Lord, I pray for those in authority. I confess, Father, I, I, I don't know what, if they know what they're doing. But Father, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think. At the end of the day, my responsibility, our responsibility, Lord, before you, is to pray for them. And so we lift them up. We pray for each of the governors in these 50 states, the local mayors and politicians, the senators, the congressmen, even the president and the vice president, the people that surround them. Father, they all need prayer. We pray for them to have wisdom. We pray for their salvation. Lord, change our hearts. Give us a heart to live peaceably and quietly. And Lord, whatever you may be doing in this pandemic, whatever you may be doing with this virus, one thing I pray is that you will use it to bring us and draw us closer to your dear son. Make us more like him, we pray. In your son's matchless name, amen.